0: Good morning, Church family. Good morning. My name is Doris Cassan, and this morning our scripture reading is from the book of Luke, Luke 111 to four. We are in the sermon series called "Safe and Holy. Please follow along in your Bible or use the screen. I will be using the new American Standard Version. This passage is so familiar that many of your eyes, you could just close and pray along with the passage. It happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John also taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us of our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning. I am Peter. I am one of the pastors here at Evergreen. I want to welcome you to church this morning. Welcome. As Doris said, we've been in a sermon series called Safe and Holy, and what we've been saying thus far is that holy people, contrary to what we might instinctively think, are actually safe people, not safe or holy as we tend to experience. And we've been saying that the key to safe and holy is really being able to be your true self, a self that's not defined by others or the tyranny of the urgent or fears or anxieties or a self that caves in under pressure or stress. But a holy person is able to be different to be set apart from their environment. And we know that God is holy because he is different. He's not a function of his environment. He's not an extension of our will, but he is his own holy being. And he calls us to be holy. And therefore, a safe and holy person is self-differentiated, just as God is, and does not take on the anxiety in the system. Conversely, the flip side of that, a positive, is that because someone who is actually holy can function apart from the system that they are in, someone who is self-defined is able to bring change to that system. Someone who is self-defined can affect a system that has been stuck for a long time in a certain culture or a rut or a way of doing things. It can be a family or a relationship, a company, or even an entire country. This week we celebrated, many of you know this, that we celebrated the 25th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall, which divided Germany since 1945 when Nazi Germany was defeated. On November 9, 1989, at 11.30 p.m., East German guards opened the gate. This one crucial event led to the collapse of the wall. Harold Yeager defied his superiors and against their orders. And he he gave the order to open up the gates, allowing one person through, followed by many more. And the question that was asked this week by many uh, historians and uh, news reporters was, how was one man, this one guard, steeped in German culture, You do not disobey your superiors. How was he able to differentiate from his environment and go against the flow? It's a good reminder for us that our life doesn't have to be what it has always been. You can differentiate and be set apart. You can be holy. Today, I want to invite you to look at a well-known teaching that we call affectionately the Lord's Prayer in a very new way, I want you to see that a key characteristic of the system or the environment or the word kingdom, as Jesus puts it, that we live in, okay, is loss mitigation. We are always suffering loss or trying to recover loss or trying to avoid loss again, that's the system. That's what the system is driven by loss mitigation. To be differentiated from this system, Jesus says, is to be able to forgive loss, or the way he puts it, forgive debt. Not minimizing the pain or difficulty of loss. Jesus doesn't teach to just accept loss and forgive, but make forgiveness the way to experience what he made possible through the cross. That's redemption which is what we find on the other side of loss through forgiveness. And so we have a system that is driven by loss. And everything we do is trying to mitigate loss in our life. And here Jesus comes and says, in my system, in the kingdom that is new, that I'm bringing uh, to bear on this earth and inviting you to join, you don't have to live the game of loss mitigation. You can differentiate from that way of life. Instead, you can choose to forgive, which opens the door to redemption, which overpowers loss. When something happens or loss comes our way, we instinctively look for some redemptive value. I told a story earlier, a few weeks ago, of how Susie and I acquired a West Elm table through Craigslist and how I was given the wrong screws, which were too long and I ended up screwing through the top of the table and completely ruining it. You remember that story? As it was dawning on me what I had done, as the blood of the table was dripping down my fingers, immediately my mind searched for some positive. I, I tried to bend reality in some way so that all was not lost. I was desperate for redemption Uh, To tell you the rest of the story, Susie uh, told West Elm exactly what happened, and to make a long story short, they decided to forgive our mistakes made along the way, and they gave us a brand new table, which we've been eating on for three weeks now. West Elm's forgiveness allowed me to experience a small taste of the power of redemption that is unleashed through forgiveness. If they didn't forgive, there is no redemption. Lots of examples of loss and loss mitigation in my life. I'm sure you have many stories of loss yourself. Could you think of one right now in your mind? What have you lost? Here's one of mine. I lived in Boston for seven years. And during year four, Susie and I were sitting at the closing table. This is another table story. We were sitting at the closing table one evening, getting ready to sell our condo, which was our first property, and buy our first house the next morning. We were excited about this momentum in our life. We had uh, with us a check for $200 that we wanted to gift to the buyers, A a young newlywed couple, both doctors. But at the table to our disappointment, confusion and surprise, right at the finish line, they insisted insisted that we pay for half their attorney fees and threatened to walk away from the deal if we didn't. Based on principle alone, this demand felt like extortion and we could not agree to that. But then what would we do? We had a closing in the morning for our new house. The movers were coming, everything was arranged. The buyer stood up and walked away to another room, and we took the moment to consult with our realtor. And considering all of the pros and cons, we reluctantly agreed to pay the uh, attorney's fees. We also proceeded with our original plan to gift them the $200, hoping that would amount to heaping burning coals on their heads. (laughs) Strong feelings have cemented this memory in my mind. On the other side of loss was the new house, so we conceded to this, but to this day, it still stings. I also remember the time my spot in line for surgery was stolen by that woman who squeaked louder, or my friend died during a seizure, or when another friend was shot to death, or when I was beaten and mugged at knife point, or when my kid was misunderstood at school. Loss is a fact of life. Fear of loss is a defining characteristic of the human plight. The economics of loss drive our human way of life, recovery of loss, avoidance of loss, fear of loss. It is hard to get around or over loss. Here in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus teaches his disciples a new economic model that doesn't avoid or minimize loss, but promises to overpower it through what he calls forgiveness. Forgiveness is at the heart of God's new kingdom, which he ushered in through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. On the other side of loss, Jesus promises us is what we would call change. And the possibility of change is what hope is made of. So he ultimately promises us hope when all feels Lost. A safe and holy person knows how to differentiate from the system which only knows loss and gain and is able to forgive loss, thereby ushering in the power of redemption made possible through Christ, thus establishing God's new kingdom, thus establishing God's new economy. We have two points today first, the fear of loss, and second, the fear, the prayer of the lost. Excuse me, the, pr- the fear of loss and the prayer of the lost. First, fear of loss. Okay, looking again at verse 2 and 3, I read it for us. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Prayer in large part is the human response to the past, present And the future. Have you ever thought about that? We see all time dimensions addressed in Jesus' prayer. Your kingdom come is future. Give us this day is present. And forgive us our sins is addressing the past. When we ask for God's kingdom to come, what we're saying is we want that ideal world, the world we know we were meant to live in. We want it to be real today. It's prayer for our children to live in a better world with less injustice, less catastrophe, more joy, more security. But here's a key insight that we miss in this prayer uh, if we don't understand the original language, so I present it to you here. The word daily bread requires a little bit of explanation. Jesus isn't suddenly changing topics from kingdom And then he suddenly realized he was hungry, and so he's talking about food. The word that's translated daily in the Greek, it's an eschatological word. Eschatological means that it has to do with the end times. The more literal translation is not daily, but the word, given its eschatological bent, is the word coming. The sentence would read, give us today our coming day's bread, or our future bread. To mean, give us today, this very day, at this moment, in my real life, right now, give me a taste of the kingdom, which is to come fully in the future, at the end of days. So a literal translation might be something like, give us today, our coming days, bread. And you understand, it's not talking about bread, it's talking about the kingdom. So let me expound a little bit further. In your coming kingdom... There is no such thing as loss. My life today is filled with loss. Let me taste of the new kingdom where there is no loss. And Jesus says that the way we experience losslessness is by the work that he is going to do on the cross to make redemption of that loss possible. In other words, Our lives don't have to be defined by our relationship to loss, but we can can cross to the other side of loss, redemption, through the cross, through forgiveness. We can release ourselves, our circumstances, and each other from the debt of loss. Fear of loss rules the human kingdom, but in God's kingdom, ushered in through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, Loss is mitigated. Forgiveness, that is, breaking the power and cycle of loss, is possible. Let me uh, explain further in two ways, one using thermodynamics and one using socioeconomics. First, the law of conservation of energy states that the total energy of an isolated system is constant. Energy can be transformed from one form to another but cannot be created or destroyed. Some of you remember learning that. That is to say, the only way a person can gain is is if someone else experiences loss because you can't increase the system. Gain and loss are inversely connected. Your gain is my loss and my gain is your loss. My wealth is your poverty. Infants in utero grow at the mother's expense. Then what do we do with poverty and pain, evil, atrocity, and death? How can our dreams come true without becoming somebody else's nightmare? As Louis C.K., my favorite comedian, says, there is no end to amazing human achievement if we are willing to throw human suffering and injustice at it. Can we have fresh orange juice or amazing coffee or a beautiful engagement diamond without human suffering? Human economy means conservation of loss and gain. There is no one without the other, and the other means the one. But through Jesus Christ, there is such a thing as redemption. Jesus came from outside the system, to take on loss and absorb it into himself. He who knew no loss became loss for us. He lost everything so that we might gain hope for redemption. At his expense, we can pray for a taste today of God's coming kingdom. The second example is from behavioral economists. They have well researched and documented and articulated that the fear of loss leads to what is called the sunk cost fallacy. How about a little um, opportunity to show off? What is the sunk cost fallacy? Anybody know? Give me a definition. There are a lot of business folks in here. You must know this. The sunk, S-U-N-K, cost fallacy. No takers? In my script, it says I'm supposed to say, that's right. That's right. The sunk cost fallacy (laughs) starts out with an aversion to loss that leads people to continue making future decisions based on recovering past loss that cannot be recovered. A common example of sunk cost fallacy is sitting through a bad movie because you've already paid for the ticket. How does wasting more time and more money Help you recover past loss. It doesn't. Economists consider sunk cost fallacy to be completely irrational and the equivalent of throwing good money after bad. It's people in the present making bad decisions about the future based on past loss. It's crying out for prayer, it's crying out for forgiveness. It's irrational attachment to the past. It's loss of the past, lost, loss of the present, and loss of the future. It's a kingdom you don't want to be living in, but you do. You're surrounded and driven by sunk cost fallacy. None of us are above it. Have you ever stayed through a bad movie or a bad relationship or a bad job or a bad bet? Have you ever been kept from assessing the present wisely and clearly because you are clouded by your past loss or trauma or pain? What lesson have you learned that you really need to unlearn so you can be released from the past and the, future and the fear of loss and from trying to recover loss? In a million ways, I live the song called Fallacy. I have come home from a bad day at work where I felt loss of dignity and time and try to recover it by being mean to my family or not giving them my time. I've taken advantage of systems because I felt injustice in some way. Haven't you ever felt entitled to speed if you were stuck in traffic? God save, 405. Whole countries have gone to war over irrecoverable loss. Consider Nazi Germany and how it was divided after for 35 years. What were they trying to gain? If you read history, they will tell you it was fear. The economy of our world is cruel and unforgiving and sunk. Not only are we trying to recover loss, we live to avoid future loss, to never relive the past. We are driven by the past and relive it again and again and again. We don't take the risks we should. We can't enter into the moment and be present or enter into the future. There is even such a thing as what uh, economists call the inverse loss-aversion ratio. And this means that most people, when they consider a risk, won't take it unless they can be guaranteed that the gain will be greater than 200%. Loss leads to recovery obsession, which leads to loss-aversion. Life loses its ability to live life and get centered around death. We're like a betrayed lover, always paranoid, always afraid, always hurting, and we're locked in a closed system of loss and gain, only able to temporarily gain at each other's expense, only to lose again. Locked in a cycle, caught in an endless loop of loss and fear and mitigation and litigation. Who can save us from this body of death? the prayer of the lost. One fascinating chocolate experiment was conducted that illustrated how much we are driven by the sunk cost fallacy. On a busy street in New York City, a chocolate stand was set up. Hershey's kisses were offered for one cent and expensive truffles for 15 cents. The far majority purchased the truffles, recognizing the superior value Of the truffles. Then the researchers discounted the prices of these chocolates by one cent. They offered the truffles for 14 cents and the Hershey's Kisses for free. The far majority of people switched and they began to choose the free Hershey's Kisses. And the question is why did one cent lead to such a huge shift in choice? Because so deep is our desire to recover loss that we're willing to not eat truffles for 14 cents if it means we might get something for free to help fill the gap. What gap? That gap that you have from being alive in this world that keeps on taking from you the space that longs for grace and free love that is not earned or taken away but is unconditional. The fact that we are so driven by and obsessed with loss is interesting because I think the thing we most long for is on the other side of loss. We just don't know how to get there. We don't know how to navigate or negotiate our way through loss. To know that we are safe because there is a greater economy than loss and gain. That aging, sickness, tragedy, happenstance, mistakes, or a smarter person's wits don't determine our destiny. I realize At the very bottom of my heart, I don't want economy. I want love. I don't want math. I want grace. I don't want survival of the fittest. I want to be safe in the arms of one who is truly holy. And from him, I need forgiveness. Verse 4 says this, And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation to the lost to the obsessed with loss he says in my coming kingdom which you can taste of today there is such a thing as forgiveness you can receive forgiveness and you can extend forgiveness you don't have to exact payment from any moment or institution or person if there is a price to pay, I will pay. If there is any damage incurred, I will pay. If there is hurt, I will pay. If there is crime, I will pay. You don't have to hold on and remember and count again. I will sometime in my economy recover all loss. Every tear I will wipe away, every sin I will forgive. You are safe with me. You can trust me. You can finally rest from the work. That was underneath all of your work. You can cut your losses. I will pay. You don't have to pay it back. You are free to pay it forward. To receive and to give. Because I will pay. Sin in our life leads to either loss or indebtedness. Sin draws some of its power From our need for loss mitigation our need for loss recovery keeps us trapped in the sunk cost fallacy or what here jesus calls temptation when we are tempted the cycle of sin loss and sin starts all over again and again and again and beyond the fallacy it's really a tragedy it's only the only way out jesus says is forgiveness There is no forgiveness apart from the cross. There is no cross apart from the death of Christ. Therefore, there is no hope without the death of Christ. Shylock, some of you know this name, is the merchant of Venice in a Shakespearean play who is outcast by polite Christian society as a greedy, wicked loan shark. In a climactic scene, Shylock, unable to absorb loss from an unpaid loan, of his money and of his daughter who runs off with the enemy, demands his bond, which was legalized as a pound of flesh. According to Shylock's demands for the letter of the law, he's granted his pound of flesh in court, but warned that he must cut out an exact pound of flesh, not an ounce above or below, nor a drop of blood must fall, or else he would be charged with murder, and all of his Belongings would be confiscated. Bloodthirsty to mitigate loss. But as with Shylock, there is no way. There is only loss and no gain. On the other side of loss, however, is redemption. In God's economy, in all things, God works for the good. Not all things are good. In fact, many things are bad and evil and ought not to be. But God has the power to work all things for the good. The good that comes from bad will show you not that all things are good, but that God is good and he's powerful and he is wealthy and he is generous and he is able to pay. For me, redemption does not mean that every single thing is somehow perfected. Redemption for me means that there is a lot of grace that is coming my way far more than I deserve or have cooperated with as to a child and even an oblivious one. Redemption means there is forgiveness for my sins, that my sins won't ultimately take me to their logical conclusion. My life is not just a sum of my choices and consequences. For me, redemption means that God is less interested in exacting revenge or tallying up all my debt. I am not on a scale. I am not a math problem. I'm not on trial. I am not judged. I am only forgiven. In my closed system, I have no hope, but only loss. But a holy God has crashed into my system from beyond my closed system and has absorbed all loss through the cross. And the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, God now gives to me if I will trust in him to give me the power to not be driven by loss but by grace, I can be free. I can love. I can give. I can serve. The world is lost, but you can be differentiated from the world by the blood shed on the cross and by the power given to you in the resurrection. Loss is Is excruciating and disorienting and reminds us just how broken our world is. The temptation is to try and recover loss. But Jesus prayed, let us not be tempted. But we want to try and recover loss, even at the expense of others, even by incurring more loss ourselves. It is so easy to stay stuck in loss mitigation. Such is the way of our kingdom. And here Jesus invites us to a new way in his kingdom of responding to loss through the faith act of forgiveness. And through forgiveness, he opens the way to redemption, the power of change and salvation. The goal is not to prevent loss, but to overcome the power that loss has in our life through the counter-instinctual act of forgiveness. Let me close by reading the Apostle Paul's testimony of the power of God in his life to deliver him from his system. Second Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope, and he will yet deliver us. You also joining in helping us through your prayers so that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many. For our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world. Would you pray with me? Father, help us to be In this world, but not conduct ourselves according to this world. This world is caught up in loss mitigation. But you have forgiven us of our sins. And all loss has been absorbed into you. And you have nailed it to the cross. And you have shed blood to cover us. And you have imputed to us your righteousness. And you have given to us the power of your Holy Spirit. That we might live each day, not driven by loss, but led by the Spirit. So we look to you and to your economy. And we pray for your kingdom to come. In Jesus' name, amen.